Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the final Peace Talks for 2019. Um, so glad that you could come uh, to this one. As we start, as usual, we are going to start with uh, an acknowledgement of country. As I said at the last Peace Talks, we've been on a, a journey of different ways of looking at acknowledgement to country. Um, and as we gather together at this time, um, uh, this week, uh, has been a significant week for Aboriginal peoples from east to west coast. On the west coast, uh, this week we had the passing of Uncle Reverend Garlett, uh, an incredible Noongar Wajak elder and uh, Aboriginal Christian leader. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so we honour his passing and his um, work and his faith um, and his journey. And then on the East Coast, um, we had the passing of Uncle Sam Watson, um, who was one of our great activists. Uh, yeah, very personal um, to me, and his funeral will be on Friday, which I'll be up in Brisbane for. Uh, but we honour the work that he did, not just in Brisbane, but right across these lands that we now call Australia. Um, and so we pay our respects to these incredible men uh, and the impact their loss has on the Aboriginal community all across Australia. And as we enter this space of acknowledgement of country, um, sometimes uh, words aren't actually required. Um, so what I wanted to do with this one, Catherine is going to bring her own acknowledgement of country, um, but for this specific one, I'd like us all to stand. And uh, I'm going to just play my clapsticks and then we'll just have a minute silence and then I'll finish with the clapsticks. And so I want us each to reflect on whose land we stand on and uh, what acknowledgements of country means for you personally. Uh, so for our final peace talks um, for 2019 uh, and as an introduction to Advent. So uh, as you know, I've just been announced as the new CEO for Common Grace and uh, yes. Uh, and so tomorrow, one of my favourite, my Advent series is always uh, my favourite and uh, Advent, uh, our series is starting tomorrow. Um, and we'll start with a reflection from Reverend Catherine Ranger. Um, so a uh, kind of leading on from this discussion that we'll have tonight. So uh, I would like to invite up uh, Reverend Catherine Ranger. Uh, so Reverend Catherine Ranger is a priest, a chaplain, a teacher and a theologian. She is a member of Friends of Sibyl Australia, a group associated with the Sibyl Ecumenical Liberation Theology Centre in Jerusalem and the Palestine-Israeli uh, Ecumenical Network. Um, and as I sometimes do, I also add a personal uh, introduction to our speaker um, based on relationships. So Catherine and I met uh, a few years ago at the Beyond Festival, uh, and then we both had the uh, incredible opportunity to travel to Cape Town in South Africa to Stellenbosch together, um, as we both, I co-presented with um, Reverend Dr. Jeff Broughton, uh, and Catherine uh, did her own paper um, there in Cape Town at the Global Network of Public Theology. 
So Catherine's a person I learn a great deal from. Uh, she's uh, submitted her PhD, uh, and so we'll probably have her back next year talking on that topic, uh, which is an incredible um, topic as well, but we won't ruin what that's about. Uh, but uh, thank you, Reverend Catherine, for being here with us at Peace Talks, and uh, we're so grateful to hear from you. Wonderful. Thank Please you. welcome Reverend Catherine. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brooke. Thank you, Byron and David and uh, Paddington Anglican Church for hosting me here tonight. Thank you very much, um, everyone, for coming. I'll say a little bit more a bit later on about what it means to speak on this topic. Um, and on one hand, I feel it requires a great deal of sensitivity. On the other hand, I feel it requires a great deal of boldness. So trying to um, stand in between that space. Uh, when I arrived and saw the sign out the front, I was really taken aback. Um, that the advertising had been so um, out there and so I'm really thankful for even allowing this space for the conversation. So tonight as we enter into the season of Advent, um, I'm an Anglican priest so symbolism means a lot to me. Behind us we've got the Lord's table or the altar. It's a place of um, encountering belonging, nurture, feeding for everyone, power imbalances are levelled and I've placed my resources there today not as just somewhere to store them but as somewhere where we bring together that sacramental imagination of what that table represents with the notion that justice um, for all peoples is what we seek in Christ's name. We've also got an advent wreath here, which helps us um, each week to mark time as we prepare to come close to the mystery of, that is Christmas. So the season of advent is an invitation to wait, to pay attention, to anticipate, and to participate in the coming of God into the world. And I'm gonna ask Byron to light the first candle. Thank you, and <clears throat> that's very appropriate for our topic tonight. So uh, I will keep making these words of introduction, but tonight is very much a reflection. It's a conversation, it's not a lecture as such, because we could have probably a six-week course into an introduction to Palestinian theology, the Israeli-Palestine conflict, the history, the geopolitical situation, um, the geography, the way that other countries around the world interact with Israel-Palestine. So tonight is simply a reflection. I'll be drawing on my own experience and why I have become so invested in this um, topic. But I'm very, very happy to point people into further directions to learn more. So I'll begin. This is a wonderful quote from some uh, um, Nunga theologian who has really inspired me, Elizabeth Pike. She says, oh, listen to my story and rise and live with me. So we're here, um, I'm an Australian, middle class, white, not Palestinian, not Israeli, non-Indigenous person living on um, land that was never ceded. And so I acknowledge all of that, acknowledge the um, Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation, and I acknowledge the power of listening to someone else's story. And so taking Elizabeth Pike's wisdom, that's essentially what we're doing together tonight. I think I will start with my own experience. I've got two YouTube clips that I'm going to show at one point. 
One is a, a reflection that some um, Christians in Bethlehem have put together that brings in the Christmas story with their own context. And the other is where we'll actually hear from a Palestinian Christian herself who's giving a lecture. But I'm going to start, I think, um, with my own interaction with um, this place. So as we come into Advent, where one of the images that's often used is we're on a journey towards Bethlehem. And I think that's great. And I think that the biblical narratives that lead us towards Bethlehem provide plenty in the way of hope and subversion themselves. However, I get concerned any time we read scripture and don't somehow wrestle with what that means in contemporary situations. And so if we read scripture and read Bethlehem and give no um, sort of in no, no reflection on what Bethlehem is like today, I think we're missing something. And then I think that the danger is that then, that then blinds us to injustices in other situations. So our focus tonight is Bethlehem today as part of a bigger Advent journey towards Bethlehem through scripture and song and all that we'll do as we um, prepare for Christmas. In 2013, I was really fortunate. I went to Israel-Palestine on this wonderful trip. I had no idea about anything to do with the Israel-Palestine situation at all. It was just an opportunity that my university um, offered. So I did two weeks in Israel and it was completely idyllic. We were in Bethsaida, we did an archaeological dig, we got up every morning really early, we found pottery, we found coins, we literally swam in the Sea of Galilee every afternoon, we did trips to Nazareth which was fantastic, the Basilica in Nazareth is really special, um, it's a Christian city and they love the Annunciation, every Easter play turns into an Annunciation play because they're so proud of um, their connection with Mary. It was fantastic but what I am forever grateful for is that my third week was attending a conference run by Sabil, and Sabil is a um, Palestinian Christian liberation theology organisation, and it was a solidarity tour. So it was actually a young adults conference. There were 140 people from nations all over the world, and it was an incredible week. Uh, the time in Israel I'd actually found quite disorientating in a spiritual sense, in the sense of the reality of Jesus's earthly life became so vivid that I really didn't quite know how to integrate that with my faith that I'd had. Like how do I, I've got this vision of my faith, um, now I'm really coming face to face with a first century 30 year old Jewish male who lived um, you know, according to certain customs and in a certain very small communities. It, the historical nature of Jesus just, I found, it required some integration. And it still does, you know, these things we wrestle with constantly. The first one was the first century walls. That's how I phrased it. The second one, 21st century walls. Coming face to face in Bethlehem with the separation wall, coming face to face with um, human rights advocates, uh, peace activists, um, Israeli soldiers who had decided not to do their compulsory military service. Uh, it was a really eye-opening week. So we heard from um, Palestinian young people living in refugee camps in Bethlehem. 
We went to a, um, the city of Betzahor, which is a Christian city just outside Bethlehem, which in the second um, intifada, which was an uprising of the Palestinian people, was heavily um, militarised and under constant surveillance, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. Also um, saw settlements, which you've probably heard of, and I'll explain a little bit more later as well. But what I did want to do before I even started any of this was just to get a sense of what people know already. So if over this side of the room um, was I know a lot about Israel-Palestine and over this side was I know not very much at all and this is a continuum, most people are on the... We don't know very much. And so that's really helpful. So take a seat again and I'm just going to um, really take things back a bit because I've been using a lot of language and talking about a lot of different things um, so I'm just going to do a little bit of explanation. That experience that I had in Israel and Palestine was almost like a conversion experience. Seeing um, and hearing about the different uh, levels of occupation and the way that it impacted Palestinian life was so um, confronting that ever since that time, I've been um, writing letters, speaking out as often as possible and writing articles whenever I get the chance. When Brooke and I went to South Africa, the paper that I gave uh, was on this issue and depending how much time we have at the end, I'll speak about that, but it's not actually in my core presentation. When uh, we speak about Israel-Palestine, the lens that I use is a human rights lens. So the questions that I'm constantly asking are who has human rights in this situation and who doesn't? And that then leads to other questions of, well, if the people don't have human rights, then why not? And what, what's going on that's preventing um, people from having their human rights recognised? So it links, therefore, to other situations around the world that are human rights orientated. However, Israel-Palestine is unique because of its history, the way that religion is a part of the situation and the general um, geopolitical nature of it. It's very complex, it has a very long history um, and other nations have had a big impact on the way that um, the conflict has been formed. I'm going to be using the word conflict even though that is problematic and the reason it's problematic is a conflict implies that there's two equal sides and throughout the history of um, this conflict, which I am just going to keep using, uh, both sides, and I say sides in inverted commas, have done things um, to each other that have been violent and destructive and we wish you know, to find other ways. However, it's not an equal playing field. And I'm hope the one thing that I do hope that comes through my presentation is some of the nature of the injustice and the imbalance, which is why I bring things back to human rights. This is complex. And so what I present tonight is just part of a picture. It's not the whole picture. Um, I'd just like to say that I condemn violence. I condemn anti-Semitism. And I also condemn the erasure and dehumanisation of the Palestinian people. And I guess if I had a purpose tonight, it is t that idea of bringing the story alive and um, allowing us to hear from some Palestinian people themselves. So I'm actually, I just feel like I've got a lot of content here, but I do want to show this clip now because I think the visual will, will really help to set some of the scene. 
So this is something, a clip that was made in 2014, and I'll just um, let you watch it and then we'll discuss it afterwards. I like this song very much. The, the net here, uh, not uh, good. Is that YouTube? Yeah, yeah like, this is YouTube. This is YouTube. Yes. I graduate from Bethlehem University. I have BA at accounting. I like the sheep, but uh, I need a job. The story of Jesus. Yeah. Born uh, at Bethlehem. From this road, you can go uh, to Bethlehem, from this road. This is Bethlehem. It's a small city, not a big city. Near Bethlehem, we have big wall. Mary and Joseph, if he coming today, no, because the big wall is close to Bethlehem. He want permit from Israel. I come here every day at 1 o'clock a.m. to sell coffee and tea for the worker who crossed to Jerusalem. In the back of me, there is the wall, 12 meters in the sky with 700 kilometers around Jerusalem. It's very hard to come into Bethlehem because people think the Palestinian people are terrorists. Bethlehem is the city that Jesus born in it. He come to, to tell the people about the meaning of the peace, the meaning of the love the meaning of the life together. The angel came to, to Maryam yeah. and told him that he has pregnant. Yeah. Maryam do not like this because uh, uh, I do not have married from where the baby, their uh, family and they killed him. Honor, they killing. Honor killing. Honor killing. In our land, she must merit. It's shame for us. If it's not be killed, they will be thrown from her home. When she's pregnant and alone, it's her first time to have a baby. It's, I imagine God, God help her. She accepted his will. And she was ready to fight any obstacles. So, yeah, she was a strong woman. Gold is a king, and whatever circumstances we live, we have his identity and we give him our loyalty too. This is a water container. People would hide gold in these jars. Incense burner and frankincense means the priesthood. Jesus would carry our prayers and will carry us up to the Father. Without him, we cannot reach the Father. This is what Mir been carried in, and Mir is a sign for the sufferings that he would carry. They expected to see a prince in a castle. They did not expect a baby born in poverty. It's uh, not rich. It's, uh, it's very poor. I know all this. God loves the poor people, rich people, old people. 
He's a refugee. Jesus is a refugee. They wanted to kill him. There was order to kill all the children of Bethlehem, newborns to uh, two years old. That's why she flew to Egypt. Jesus uh, born refugee because God he wanted to teach us how if Jesus born refugee, what about us? And he teaches us about to give forgiveness and uh, love. They come from God to give him the message for peace. This is the important thing that the God is told to Isa to, 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 to the people. Yes. The Prince of Peace being born in the most troubled land on earth, it has like a significance maybe. We need peace inside ourselves and we need peace all over the world. We can feel the peace in our life because we have a hope. Hope coming where we understand each other, and the hope coming where we understand God for our life. I think Jesus knocking uh, doors of the hearts of people, and he asked for anyone to open for him to start the new Christmas with him. Easter is the principle of peace. Yes, Easter is the, is the principle of peace. notice anything that they might like to share with the group so did they say 12 meters high so how big the wall was was the comment um, 700 kilometers in total 12 and it uh, it has a number of names separation wall apartheid wall protection wall depending on which way um, you're positioned uh, but obviously there's if it's about security there's Palestinians on both side of that wall so it's actually and I'll say this, it's not about security, it's about um, control and making sure that um, the Israeli government has control and access to land. So that wall separates people from their farms. It is literally um, as sort of base level as people with a cart and their horse trying to get to their olive field and being unable to get there. Um, so then harvests are not unable to happen, has a huge economic impact. Uh, when I was at the conference in Bethlehem, the statistic that was given is 80% of Palestinians rely on aid, and if their economy were able to function as an, an economy unheeded, 3% would. Because the industry and the infrastructure and the agriculture um, is there, but infrastructure is constantly being... Um, challenged by checkpoints, um, by people may not being able to get to their harvest, uh, harvest their olives and so on. Um, so it's, uh, I, I think having an idea that that wall exists and how imposing it is, um, is a, something that is really important to kind of grasp. And then what's interesting is all the artwork on the um, Bethlehem site is a form of resistance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was very much the way in which people had Thanks, David. Sorry. Yeah, no, thank um, you. The way in which people had obviously 
I guess, tried to take their own part of the wall, in mm-hmm. a sense. Like, they tried to put... I mean, the first thing that I noticed was the comment about hummus not... What was it? Make hummus not wall. You make hummus not wall, which, yeah. I mean, that's just brilliant. Uh, so that made me then really pay attention to what, you know, and that Jesus is, was a refugee and, and all that kind of stuff. So that, I mean, that's always amazing to think about the way in which people use art as a way to kind of reclaim something that mm. is horrible. Mm. Like there's colour and there's, yeah. Mm. Anyone else? Byron? Picking up on the Jesus as a refugee, I noticed one of the refugees speaking about that um, was called Issa, Mm. which is Jesus. Um, And so I guess I was struck again, I mean, I know this is what we're talking about Mm. tonight, but struck again by the presence of Christians amongst the Palestinians. Mm. Thank you. Um, So when I, uh, any, I'll keep going, when I was um, there, there were a few situations that, uh, took me aback. As an Australian going to Israel-Palestine, I had freedom of movement. There were people in our conference who were Bethlehem residents who could not go to Jerusalem, which is nine kilometres away, with the rest of us to visit the Holy Sepulchre, which is the Church of the Resurrection, because they didn't have the right permit. So um, that real disjuncture between the international community's view that the Christian tourism pilgrimage industry um, exacerbates versus the reality of Palestinian Christians and Muslims on the ground um, is something that um, is one of the reasons why I continue to speak. Because as a Christian, um, I feel sometimes Christianity exacerbates this situation really unhelpfully. And more and more as an Australian, it also does um, as our government's policies Um, become less and less, I would say, even-handed. They are far more um, in favour of Israeli government policy without much consideration for the actual Palestinian people. Um, I'm now... And just one other thing I'll say about that pilgrimage experience, and I I realise that I'm jumping a little bit over the place in terms of context, but... I think it is also important, as well as that wall, to realise that the people in the West Bank are living under a military occupation and what that means. The people in Gaza are living under a siege. So their movement, it's called the, you know, there's two million people in the strip. And I'll move to my next slide. This has a bigger context, this slide, because it shows the changes over time. But if we look at that 2012 slide, There's one of these for you to take home that actually takes the situation up to 2018. So you've got the Gaza Strip down there. It's sometimes called the largest open uh, prison in the world. 202 million people live there, um, but their movement is highly restricted and the goods that go in and out are controlled by both the Egyptian border and the Israeli border. In the West Bank, that film showed us, you know, something of the ugliness of the checkpoints and the ugliness of the wall. And one of the things I wrestled with in giving this presentation tonight is how much of the ugliness of living under military uh, occupation to share with you. Because there are film clips that you can find of um, activists who film, you know, the night raids. So those people in the refugee camp in Bethlehem 
And I have chosen not to show people uh, the, tonight the actual footage because I don't know your backgrounds and I don't know, you know, your interactions and so on of being under um, interactions with authority or police or whatever. But um, and I just wanted to be fair to you and to what you'd come to, but. It's awful, you know, the, the, this is one way that you control a people. You keep them fearful, you keep them under control and you never know if your son or daughter or your husband or your brother or your mother will be arrested next. So all those streets that we saw in that film um, are heavily uh, patrolled by Israeli military who will get an order, it's this house tonight and that's the target. Living under military occupation is actually something that we could kind of imagine from a biblical perspective too in terms of Jesus' life under Roman occupation and the way that the gospel challenges those power structures. Within Israeli society, there are, it's obviously a very mixed society, it's not a monochrome society and there are different groups within that society itself that are pushing back against the occupation that um, realise that both the oppressed and the oppressor are being, their humanity is being affected by this situation. So there's people within Israeli um, society who actually go to the checkpoints where people have to try to cross to get to work or like we saw in that film, they have to, if they work in Jerusalem at 8am and they're lucky enough to have a permit, then they may have to line up at 4am just to have time to get through. And there's international people who come and bear witness, but there's also people within Israeli society that bear witness to that too. One of the things I often say is um, all Israeli young people have to do three years of compulsory military service if you're male, two years if you're female. And imagine what you could do in two or three years of your life as a young person. You could do an electrician's apprenticeship, you could do an arts degree, you could do an engineering degree, you could go and be an au pair for a family, you know. All these, you could do land care for three years, all these things, and instead compulsory military service, actually um, for a lot of people, some it entrenches um, more stereotypes and anti-Palestinian people, but for a lot of people, it just actually traumatises them. Standing at checkpoints and stopping old men and old women from going and visiting a relative, it's, um, and you know, I'm not taking away from the fact that it's the Palestinian people that are suffering the most in this situation, but you can see that this situation is not good for anyone. And uh, that's why peace activists uh, continue, I guess, to do the work that they do. As always, with all our talk of peace, we know there's no peace without justice. And so justice is absolutely at the heart of this. Now, I'm just going to give a brief overview of some of the history of how the Israel-Palestine situation came to be. So, um, Prior to World War I, it was part of the Ottoman Empire, and there's a history before that. At the end of World War I, the British came in and um, Palestine was under British mandate, which means essentially a colonial foreign power. Uh, there were Jews, Muslims and Christians, all part of the community. Over time, um, more Jewish people migrated to um, Palestine and then 
the you know horrendous um, World War Two and the Holocaust occurred. After that, um, it was almost there were a number of forces at play. There was a Zionist movement within some Jewish. Um, communities that felt they needed to have a homeland and that homeland needed to be what was historically um, you know connected with ancient Israel however the and the global community was starting to feel you know that we need to make some sort of recompense and a number of uh, places around the world were offered as a Jewish homeland potential even Western Australia which would have had its own um, dispossession of those um, that those you know traditional owners. And so, and it was almost sadly like as if the Western countries actually still didn't really want to integrate lots of Jewish refugees. So this became a really convenient solution. We'll create the state of Palestine, which happened, or the state of Israel, which happened at the stroke of a pen from the United Nations in 1948. And in that moment, the Palestinian people were dispossessed now, and then there was a lot of fighting on the ground and there was a large-scale dispossession of the Palestinian people because that this would happen anywhere if all of a sudden Queensland decided we're going to live in New South Wales now and New South Wales people can just move out of their homes. It's a human situation that is always going to lead to disaster whenever you come in and um, take someone else's land essentially. So, but this, the large scale of this means that um, one side of the narrative celebrates Independence Day, Israeli Independence Day, the other side calls it Nakba, which is the catastrophe. So, and a lot of Palestinian people have stories of being uh, forced from their homes, still having the keys to their homes. And uh, they, as I'm speaking about Palestinian Christians here because that's the people I've interacted with. The deeply um, honouring of the suffering and trauma of the Holocaust, but feel that they have had to bear the brunt of the physical reparations, if you like. The rest of the world was silent or, um, you know, contributing to um, the awful genocide, but now it's their land that and their homes that have been. And you know, I'm also not undermining the fact that it is hugely, con uh, from a theological or religious point of view, and I'm not, not going to go into this too much tonight, it's complicated. That patch of land is very complex. But once again, using my human rights lens, there's some basic principles that have been ignored. And one of the books that's been quite influential in my reading, this is actually a Jewish scholar, Mark Ellis, toward a Jewish theology of liberation. And he tells stories of um, refuge, Jewish refugees from Europe coming in and being given a house and there were still toys, you know, from the previous family that had fled in terror because it was a very um, violent sort of coming into being for the state of Israel. Um, and, and, you know, just having that moment of disconnection. We have been dispossessed and now... Um, and I'm not, I'm very careful in the language I'm using. I'm not saying that, you know, the whole Jewish people dispossessed another people. I'm just saying that there are testimonies of Jewish refugees coming in and feeling a profound sense of disconnect with what was happening. Um, the third edition of this book uh, actually has a, a foreword written by Desmond Tutu. 
And the South African people that were on the trip that I were, um, they were very vocal. We walked through checkpoints that tourist buses normally just go right around as a mark of solidarity and to see what it was like. And um, they were singing their protest and freedom songs like quite provocatively. But I felt for our Palestinian hosts because it's almost like we had the freedom to do that but we weren't under surveillance. And like the Palestinian hosts were like cheering them on um, because it was such a moment of solidarity. But you just know that um, we'll go back home again and you know, they've got to continue their work on the ground. Um, something else that we did in that uh, trip was we, uh, so like through this lens of living under military occupation, it means that there's also a whole lot of bureaucracy. So even though, um, you might live, so in this partition plan, in this map, the idea was there was a Palestinian state that never fully came into being because of the United Nations not, you know, pushing it into statehood. And so in that last map, the 2012 one, all those green bits that are um, the West Bank, it makes no sense that they are under Israeli control if they're Palestinian areas. And so, but they are essentially under the military occupation. And so even things like you might apply to put an extension on your home, um, but then that permit, you know, to build the extension just gets lost in the bureaucracy. And then you build it anyway, and then people come along the Israeli Defence Force and demolish it. So this is, you know, life under occupation. And we would rebuild some of the homes and the people, the Palestinian people would say, this is not a humanitarian action that you are doing, it's a political action. Because an earthquake hasn't destroyed my home, um, the occupying force has. So um, it's just, and you know, so there's economic implications, there's also huge environmental implications. That wall and then the exclusion zones, you know, on either side, that is not good for land or water. Um, and that was one of the points that was made um, when I was there. So I'll just say one more thing about the history. Uh, after 1948, there was a green line that, did, that showed the two, it was a partition plan essentially, similar to um, India and Pakistan. You know, another force would just come in and say, okay, this is how you people are going to live now. Um, more land was given to Israel in comparison to the percentage of Jewish people, so that was an injustice from the start and caused um, a lot of ill feeling. And then uh, up until 1967, Egypt looked after the Gaza Strip and Jordan had the West Bank under its jurisdiction. In 1967, there was a war, a six-day war in the area, and from that point, Israel sort of won that conflict that's when the occupation started of the West Bank and of East Jerusalem, so and of Gaza as well. So that's there was 1967. You can see the third one that the the dynamics and the power changed again. Now I am going to now change tack slightly to talk about Palestinian liberation theology. Palestinian liberation theology asks questions of the Christian faith and tradition from within the context of being Palestinian, and it also uses a liberation theology lens. So therefore, the quest for justice, 
the liberating love of Christ who taught nonviolent resistance in the face of occupation, honest and faithful witness to the truth. These are all things that are central to Palestinian Christian theology. The other aha moment for Palestinian Christian, such as Naeem Atik, who wrote, um, this is his latest book, The Palestinian Theology of Liberation, the Bible, Justice and the Palestine-Israel Conflict, is that not only did they live in the land of Jesus' birth, but Jesus knew what it was to live under occupation, and so do they. And Naeem Atik is the founder of Sabil, and I just want to read um, the, in, the dedication of this book. It's dedicated to Jews, Muslims, Christians, and all people of goodwill who believe in the power of nonviolence and possess the courage to stand and act for justice and peace for all people of the land, and especially for the liberation of the Palestinian people. So there's a real commitment to work both ecumenically and um, from an interfaith perspective as well. Um, something that I've learnt from Palestinian Christians is they have a saying called Samud, which is Arabic for steadfastness. So what does it mean to remain steadfast, to continue to live, to go to work, to raise your family in a non and to offer non-violent resistance um, in this situation, to remain steadfast. Uh, there's another saying, um, to have hope where there is no hope, which, you know, is just so um, profound. But, you know, what, what does that mean and how to live that out? We're going to hear from Arij Masood, who was in Canberra and did a tour of Australia last year. She is a student at Bethlehem Bible College and we'll actually watch her clip and then I'm going to stop and we'll have our question time. Um, while we'll get that up, I've just got a few more notes here. Um, that Palestinian liberation theology also has as its heart, thank you, um, a vision of sharing the land based on human rights, international law, and inspired by the Christian faith, the equality of all people, and a commitment to justice and peace. So we'll listen to Arij now, and um, she talks about something of Palestine, uh, the experience of living in Palestine, as well as she gives some testimonies of how Palestinian liberation theology is worked out in practice. Like, I get asked a lot when, when people know I'm a Palestinian Christian, when have you converted? I always tell them, since Christ was born there. It's amazing how people forget that this is where Christianity starts. And even though um, a lot of people forget that, we do, have, we do have a strong presence and a strong influence on the community. Um, but that does not mean we are bigger in number. We once used to be more than 30% Christians in, the, in, the, in Palestine. Now we are less than 0.9%. And people are still immigrating and leaving the country. What terrifies me the most is that where Christianity started, it might be the same place where Christianity is going to end. And I really pray that this would not happen. It's very sad to visit the Holy Land, to look at buildings, churches, but they're empty ones, and not seeing the living stones of the land actually be there and bless the place and be able to receive that blessing. When um, as well as growing up under occupation as a Palestinian Christian, it caused me so many challenges, personal challenges. I didn't know how to be a Palestinian Christian. How can I be a Palestinian with an international definition of an enemy, 
yet be a Christian who I'm asked to love my enemy. It, it made me wonder how easy it must be life for people when their worst enemy is their neighbor or, or someone they just um, been rude to them on the streets or their ex-best friends. But for me, I actually have an enemy. How can I love my enemy? I, ref I didn't want to believe in this. I, I refused to have it as part of my identity as a Palestinian Christian. But if I want to be a Christian, I have to take the entire Bible and not take it into bits and pieces. And I have to love my enemy. It's challenging, it's not easy, and it's not something to be taken for granted. I learned that loving my enemy is a responsi responsibility on, on, on me. It's a responsibility that I have to love my enemy enough to let them know what they're do doing wrong. When you love your friend, when you love your family members and they're doing something wrong, you let them know. And that is my, my part as a Palestinian Christian who loved my enemy, to let them know that they are harming themselves and they are harming others by the acts they're doing and by dehumanizing people because they are ruining the image of God in those people, regardless if they're Christians or not. So I took the, take that still to today as part of my day-to-day um, -day responsibility to be a Christian who do love my enemy, my actual enemy. Quoting from the Kairos document, the Kairos document is a Christian uh, document written by Palestinian theologians. Um, it's an ecumenical document as well. It addresses the issue from a theological perspective. It says, aggression against the Palestinian people which is the Israeli occupation, is an evil that must be resisted. It is an evil and a sin that must be resisted and removed. Christian love invites us to resist it. And that's what I ask you to do today. To, when you ever see any sign of hate, to resist it. Any, any, any sign of, of sinful acts, to resist that. But when I ask you to resist that, that does not mean by violence, resistance but what we call creative resistance. And creative resistance is something, it's not easy, it's another challenge. There's so many challenges uh, being a Palestinian or um, being someone in, in, a, in, a, in a conflict place. Um, creative resistance is a way that would, uh, a peaceful way that would tackle the humanity in the person in front of you. And yes, I'm using person to describe my enemy because they are human and they do can find their humanity if challenged. Um, for example, I was crossing the checkpoint. As you saw in the image, it's, it's not easy to cross the checkpoint. Um, I must have a permit to cross the checkpoint. I had my permit with me. My friend was with me as well, and she had her permit. But, to, but um, we didn't have our magnet cards. We usually pass without our magnet cards, but this time was a problem. Magnet cards are a small cards that have your fingerprints, your eye um, prints, and your pictures and everything. Um, we usually pass without it, but this time was a problem, and uh, the soldier, she refused to let us pass. She's like, if you don't have your magnet card, you're not going to pass. We start arguing with her, it's like, we always pass, it's not a problem, we have an appointment, we have to be in time, and I know how much you people uh, respect time, so... <laughs> um, it was very challenging for us not to go, not to be there. Um, it was, she started screaming, it became tense for her. She d did not want to let us pass. Another soldier comes in with his gun and he's like, what's happening? And he hears what, what she's saying and she's hearing, he's hearing what we're saying and he gets upset and he starts screaming. 
Um, everyone is screaming, I want to scream. <laughs> but then what kind of creative resistance if I participate in that game, if I start screaming as well? So I, tr I tried to uh, do it in a creative resistance way. How can I, as a person, uh, apply loving my enemy in this situation where it's needed the most? I took a breath, a long one. <laughs> I had to calm down to be able to act peacefully. Uh, only then I noticed that my, uh, um, the soldier who came in has a tattoo on his arm. And the tattoo on his arm has scrambled words of love, peace, humanity. And I was shocked. How can you believe in such values so much that you have them print, um, uh, inked on your arm, but yet not applying them on, in this situation? So I just told him, you have a nice tattoo. <laughs> and... He was surprised, he was reminded of his humanity, he was he reminded of his values, that he, he, he posed, he did like this to the other soldier who was screaming, and he said, okay, today you can pass, only today. But this only today you can pass is a big deal because an Israeli soldier, from my experience with them, would never change their mind. They can never seem weak to us. So yet he still changed his mind, and he let us pass, but only for that day. But I am sure that behind the scenes, he wondered what he was doing, or why did he do what he did, and would hopefully find his humanity and react differently and better ways in other circumstances. So the Kairos document that Arij was referring to, it's actually its 10-year anniversary um, in the last couple of days. It was inspired by South African theologians who issued a Kairos statement of their own to the global church to challenge apartheid. Um, and so it go, it's called A Word of Faith, Hope and Love from the Heart of Palestinian Suffering. And there's um, a number of these copies which kind of bring out some of the heart of that document that you can take if you would like to. Um, I might go to questions now. Yeah, but I've heard of a pretty horrendous stories of a 80-year-old man trying to get through the, uh, the checkpoint, you know, to get to Tel Aviv, you know, just to seek medical attention. And apparently I was told that uh, one 80-year-old man was a, uh, was a, uh, bashed by the soldier, you know, he says it just, just wouldn't allow him, even though he was uh, very sick, mm. really desperately in need of uh, medical attention. Mm. Uh, my question, uh, Catherine, is that, that uh, you know, we know that, uh, as you said, both sides are, you know, equally culpable, you know, I mean, the Palestinians and the Israelis, you know, I mean, so that's why we have a situation of, you know, uh, it's almost an unresolvable situation. Mm. Um, do, do, you, do you foresee, you know, any possibility of, you know, some kind of uh, truce, you know, yeah. coming, I coming I through? I don't or think, thank you for your question, I don't think both sides are equally culpable, but I think over time both sides have enacted harm on the other. Like in every conflict, the number of Palestinian deaths have been at least in the hundreds, while the Israeli deaths like, say, um, Operation Protective Edge, which was the conflict in Gaza in 2014, um, it had 73 Israeli deaths and uh, thousands of Palestinians. So it's... Uh, 
But one thing that's interesting is the Palestinians, their initial form of resistance was violence and um, the suicide bombings and so on. Now, I think they have specifically changed strategy, one would hope from a heart of humanity, but because the Palestinian theological centres, like Naeem Atik actually writes on why suicide bombing is an evil. Now, that seems self-explanatory, but he addresses it. And I think they've changed tact because not only is it inherently evil to do that, but it means that the international population has come behind the Palestinian cause because they've seen a change in um, methods and the non-violent resistance. Um, for example, there were two intifadas um, at different times, which means an uprising, and there's a fantastic um, film that we will um, just mention here called The Wanted 18 that was in Bietzahor, uh, where they had these 18 cows. So one of the forms of nonviolent resistance is to not buy Israeli products if you're a Palestinian, to get your own economy going. So this town had these 18 cows, and every night the military would go looking for the cows, and they, were, they would hide them. It's a fantastic animated film that they would hide in different houses. Um, because that was a form of resistance. Now, I forget your bigger question, but I do have a fact here that $3.2 billion in US aid goes to Israel every year compared to $399 million. So $3.2 billion versus $399 million that goes to the West Bank and Gaza. So in, for an intractable conflict, there are forces that are at play. And, you know, do I have hope? Um, I guess I have hope in the sense that, you know, humanity has, has had these situations before in South Africa, for example, and the situation in South Africa is still has huge inequalities, but the fundamental injustice and human rights um, issue was addressed, but it took pressure from the international community. And I think this is one reason why the Israel-Palestine situation is so difficult is because it's almost like Palestinian suffering and injustice has the double level of injustice because it's ignored or worse, they are made to be the, the culprits when, you know, the Hamas in Gaza, the uh, ruling um, party there, does do um, things that I you know, wish they wouldn't find, but every rocket that flies into Israel is, is met with a bombardment. Um, and that's not me exaggerating. That's, and the cruelty um, that can exist is, yeah, so I don't, I, I won't go too much into sort of the politics of the, but I think the first step is for the international community to recognise Palestine, and then from there, um, other steps could be taken and, and to end the occupation. Those two things are needed for any further steps. Yeah. Um, so kind of following on from that, I'm conscious um, that even, say, in the international community, um, I have friends who are either Jewish and or work very closely with Jews and feel aligned with them. Um, how do you even, I mean, I guess I would wholeheartedly agree with you, and I, but I guess even in the international community when we're so far removed, 
it still seems a very fraught thing to have conversations and try to constantly batten down every issue that might, mm. you know, come up in that conversation. How can you think of some, I guess, actual practical things that we ways that we can converse with people that will actually contribute peaceful conversation as opposed to simply going, you know, make, therefore having people assume that we're anti-Semitical, yeah. you know, what, you know yes. that kind of sense of wanting to have a conversation but yeah. for not, not to have it be shut down. Thank you. I think the Jewish community worldwide is very diverse and my, one of my hopes actually lies in young American Jewish people who are really distressed that their religion's being hijacked for a military occupation purposes. Um, one of the other ironies of this situation is that any Jewish person throughout the world can come and live in Israel, whereas Palestinian people who are refugees in surrounding nations like Lebanon and um, Jordan, or in refugee camps because they've been displaced within Israel-Palestine. So in 1948, they might have used to live in Nazareth, say, now they live in Gaza because of that huge um, movement of peoples. But, and so in America, they have this thing called the birthright tour where Jewish, any Jewish young person can want a fully funded tour of Israel because it's their birthright to do so. Now, I've seen footage of um, people walking off that birthright tour saying, we want to, kind of making their own tour. So they've gone off and they've said to their leaders, you're not showing us the truth. We want to go and meet um, with Palestinian people and find out what is happening, essentially in our name. So that's one thing, like there's Jewish Groups for Peace, um, Jews for Peace, which is a big American organisation. I think being really careful with language, so I um, try and say things like the Israeli government, Israeli government policy, um, the Israeli military. It's not like Israel um, who is doing this. Um, and I mean, we're, the, that government is as fraught as a lot of governments that we're experiencing at the moment. It's, you know, presence under corruption charges. Um, so I think being really careful with language, uh, and I don't know if this is helpful in that conversation, um, but I also think it's about addressing our own um, communities, or not necessarily first, but one of my real beefs is... Um, so Christian pilgrimages, when, like I write to theological colleges and groups all the time and say, you say you're going on a tour of Israel, but Bethlehem is in your itinerary. Therefore, why doesn't your big thing say, we're going on a tour to Israel-Palestine? Because you're erasing the Palestinian people and their experience if you don't acknowledge that. Similarly, even if you're going, so uh, in 1948 when the petition happened, and I wish this had have happened more fully. Jerusalem was supposed to be set aside as a United Nations city in a similar way that the Vatican has this kind of, you know, its own form of governance within our global community. Now, I don't feel that fully happened. West Jerusalem um, became is part of Israel. East Jerusalem was still, up until 1967, part of Jordan. But, I mean, that East Jerusalem is where the three major holy sites are. So, of course, it's going to be fraught. And so, um, it, but East Jerusalem technically is still an occupied Palestinian territory. So if these Christian pilgrimages, all I want is for the, some honesty and to say, we're going on a tour or a pilgrimage to Israel, Palestine. To use Palestinian guides would be the next step. 
to engage with Palestinian people and their economies would be a further one. Um, because if you, I've got up there, all language is political, and especially in this situation, it is the language that you choose to use. Um, so here I'm addressing Christians to other Christians, and we have enough problems, like, in this space. <laughs> um, so not just in this issue. Um, so, and I've got an, another friend with a Jewish background who she knows where I stand, but we don't discuss it so much. So I think, yeah, that what I said at the start, sensitivity and boldness, if there's some way to communicate a little bit of the human rights, um, and, but I, I think it's like anything, you just have to choose relationally, but I hope those things have been some helpful guides. I'd like to just expand on that a little bit. Um, you mentioned the word anti-Semitic, and I've been sort of taking interest in, in, in these issues for, since I became sensitised to them in the early 80s, so that's close on 40 years. And I noticed the word anti-Semitic is one of the biggest... Um, some, some of the armoury mm. in the Israeli language. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's thrown around in Sydney if, if mm. you would disagree with some particular thing. As soon as you there is any kind of disagreement, up comes this anti-Semitic. Now, you don't have to be anti-Jewish, you don't have to be anti-Israel to be anti what the government is doing. Mm. But this is an enormous barrier in all the international... Uh, um, all the international agreements as well. Mm, so. Thank you. And anti-Semitism is on the rise, largely due oh, to right-wing discourse. Yeah, and it's horrible. And yes. The, but but to have that as yes as the part of the armory against people yes. who don't have an a, an equivalent anti-Palestinian word or yes. whatever it is that brings in the whole Holocaust. It brings in yes. A whole lot of stuff, and it's just something that we, we, yes. I, I try and make sure that I'm aware of it when yes. it's happening, and I sometimes call it out. And the danger is. is that then that downplays real anti-Semitism, um, and yes, so, and I, I say like you know for everything. So people use the terminology. You know, Israel has a right to its borders. Israel has a right to security. Well, Israel has a right to, you know, homeland. Well, so do Palestinian people. Palestinian people have a right to security, to not to be, um, you know, brutalised by military practices, arbitrary military, to not undergo collective punishment. Collective punishment is a real fact, um, and that's, you know, that's against international law. So um, for everything, like, you know, the state of Israel is what it is, and... By and large, the majority of Palestinian <laughs> activists are now either trying to get the Palestinian state up or equal human rights up. Even, you know, your most hardcore Hamas person, like they've had some statements, and I'm not excusing them because I think they still have some language that's really unhelpful about the state of Israel, but there have been moves even by Hamas to say, okay, we recognise the state of Israel. But when will we recognise the state of Palestine is the question for the rest of us. Uh, one thing you mentioned at the start yeah. was um, in engaging uh, first century 
geographical locations that we come across in the Bible and then engaging those stories with uh, now. Yep. Uh, like, yeah, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about how you encourage people to do that. What are the ways we can do that? Um, so I've done a lot of work on Matthew chapter 2, which is Herod and the Magi and um, the massacre of holy innocence. And the way that um, Jesus is put into that text as like, uh, in it, like co contrasted with Herod constantly. So this powerful king, this weak baby, but the true king who then is alive at the end when Herod is dead. So it's sort of this subversive thing about where the power really lies. Now, at the same time, um, the massacre of the other infants in Bethlehem happens. And so to me, like, I've wrestled a lot with that text because I'm not satisfied that Jesus is saved while they are not as a neat theological package. I more um, see it as that is an atrocity that shows what tyrants have done and continue um, to be capable of, generally I'm speaking here. But within that story, there still is this, you know, Jewish family um, that are um, representative of, yeah, another way of being in the world um, that God honours and is really present with. So related to that, and, you know, and, the, and that refugee experience of going into Egypt this great quote here, for those with eyes to see, the gospel stories expose inadequacies of the status quo, offer visions of God's life-giving alternative, realistically warn of conflict and sustain its consenting readers to live this counter-narrative on the margins. Um, and the Christmas stories, um, as we come to them, are deeply um, subversive in terms of who is given insight, who has power, um, but who has, I guess, like a, a truer form of power. All right, well, we, should we wrap up, Brooke? Yeah. Um, so I've brought a lot of things along with me today and anything on that back table where there's multiple copies, please feel free um, to take one. I'll just go through some of the sli other slides I have. So this is another Banksy um, picture from the wall. Um, this is another one, Merry Christmas from Bethlehem Ghetto. And then my response is, did I go through everyone? So I'm a member of the Palestine-Israel Ecumenical Network, and if you'd like to join the mailing list, um, there's a way to do that at the back. Sabil that I mentioned, the Liberation Centre that um, started in Jerusalem but has offices in Nazareth as well, they have a wave of prayer. So every Thursday a prayer message will come out, something to pray for, and... If you become a member of Seville, they also have an excellent publication that comes out every um, so often called Cornerstone, which is really good. Um, Christian pilgrimages I've talked about. Don't ignore Christ at the checkpoint. You know, where is Christ with us today? Wherever there is injustice, calling it out um, in the quest for the historical Jesus. Now, we don't separate the historical Jesus from the Christ of faith, but... We don't ignore the Christ um, of faith, you know, in these pilgrimage experiences. Um, the Pal Sydney people, you should all be at the Palestinian Film Festival when it comes to Sydney each year. Um, I mean, and even advertising that on Facebook is a subtle way um, to your friends that you 
um, are at least going to engage with these stories. Palestinian film is excellent. Brilliant film called Wahib, which means duty, um, that's set in Nazareth, and it just deals with the complexities. I mean, in some ways, my presentation tonight might have been a bit um, black and white, you know, one side versus the other kind of thing. That film doesn't allow that. Like, it teases out, um, you know, this is about a son who's gone away and comes back to his father. And um, 1948 Creation and Catastrophe is a documentary about the creation of the State of Israel. Uh, brilliant, brilliant documentary, very hard watching. Lemon Tree set on the West Bank, that's great. The Wanted 18 is um, the one about the cows, the animation. The Stones Cry Out, the story of Palestinian Christians. Um, I'd recommend watching this yourself first and then maybe getting a group together to watch it. Watching Arija's entire YouTube clip, it's 40 minutes, um, would be a good thing to do. And then remember Bethlehem past and present this Christmas. Uh, well, thank you, Reverend Catherine Ranger, for bringing uh, such a thought-provoking reflection, um, and particularly from a human rights lens. So we do very much thank you. Um, uh, obviously, in my work, helping people to open their eyes and see truth and justice is very important. And I must admit, I have very little understanding. I didn't until this year even realise that there was the separation wall. Um, and so I think uh, really bringing that to realisation of uh, that place at this time mm. um, and particularly as we head into the Advent season um, where I think I have even romanticised the birth of Jesus um, to really understand what that means uh, and take it to a different level. So I thank you. Um, could you please thank Reverend Catherine? Uh, I want to thank all of you for being here tonight. Uh, please remember the Common Grace Advent series starting tomorrow. So if you don't receive that in your email inbox, it means you are not signed up for the Advent series or not signed up for Common Grace. So you'll need to go to the website and put in your email address. Uh, and also tonight, um, Sue Davis has brought uh, along some Aboriginal items from Auntie Jean Phillips. So if you're looking for a Christmas present for someone, um, there's a range of things. Uh, don't forget to look at the resource mm -hmm. table. Uh, and just as our final Peace Talks for 2019, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, but I just want to thank all of our speakers during the year and uh, all the people um, who've been part of the Peace Talks community. Uh, and so I thought I might just, uh, before we head out to supper, um, uh, think about this whole year uh, in prayer. Uh, create a spirit. Lord God, Papa Jesus, uh, we just uh, thank you that as Christians this year, uh, through the Peace Talks uh, community uh, here at Paddington Anglican Church, St George's, that we've been able to gather together uh, to listen, uh, to engage uh, with peace as political, ethical, artistic and cultural engagement. Uh, may more Christians come to engage with these issues and may we find places where we can listen, learn, ask questions and form community. Uh, we thank you for everyone who has been part of this community through 2019 uh, and uh, we pray that we uh, 
enter the Christmas and New Year period uh, with love uh, for all peoples. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen.